Have you noticed anything creepy about the twins, apart from the fact that they're twins? Just because they're twins doesn't automatically make them creepy. It does a little bit. Yeah. When I was your age, television was called books. Hey, welcome again, friends and listeners, to another episode of the Book Exchange Podcast. Great to be with you here. Uh, this is John Lovell, again, coming to you from Maryland. I've got my partner in crime, my twin brother and co-host on the line, Jude. Jude, what's up? Not much. Ready to go for another episode. All right. And that is episode 50. So a little bit of a milestone for us uh, here this afternoon here, Jude, which is exciting. Uh our 50th episode of the show so we're frankly flabbergasted to have gotten you know 50 episodes into this thing but we're still having a great time with it and uh in order to celebrate that we decided we'd give ourselves a little bit of a challenge for this episode didn't we yeah yeah we'd save the uh the hard one for episode 50 i don't know what that means but um like you said we're still going and we're still getting stuff out of it hopefully the listeners are too so let's go yeah, so this episode, episode 50, is called RE colon verse, or you could say reverse if you want. But it is uh, RE in the sense of regarding. It is all about verse, and that means poetry. So poetry is a genre that we've sort of, uh, you know, I guess I would say avoided somewhat deliberately up to this point, although I'm a huge fan of it, and uh, I know that you're you're a fan and you're kind of growing in your appreciation for it, I guess we would say. But uh it's a subject that we knew we would kind of come around to eventually, but, uh, you know, had to get ourselves warmed up. But now here we are. We're going to have a whole episode that's on poetry. And right out of the gate, I want to just encourage all of our listeners to hang with us because this is not, I'll tell you what, this is anything but, you know, an academic, dry kind of dissection, uh, trying to define what poetry is or talk about iambic pentameter and all the different, you know, there's a whole... <laughs> you know, te technical aspect to poetry that we don't even remotely have the qualifications to tackle. This episode is more about kind of our thoughts on why poetry is worth reading, you know, some of our experiences with it, and then we'll I'll give some recommendations, you know, kind of poems that have affected us, you know, in our lifetimes as readers, maybe favorite poets, but I just want to emphasize, and I, you know, you can comment on this, this is not an academic exercise at all. This is us just sort of wrestling a little bit wrestling with the angel, you know, kind of uh, as readers ourselves, it's, you know, poems are, are, are uh, you know, we grapple with them sometimes and we grapple with poets, but I think we both uh, have gotten enough out of reading poetry over the years to really, you know, recommend it and to, to have thoughts about why, why it's valuable and why it may be worth taking on. So that's kind of what this is. It's sort of a personal, uh, uh, our personal thoughts on both some of the poets and poems that we've read, but also just the experience of, of reading poetry, really. So that's how I decided to tee it up. Jude, what comments do you have before we get into the episode here? Well, <laughs> 50 episodes in, so we're inching close to what our actual ages are, John, right? So um, <laughs> that's right. That, 
that puts us at a certain age. And so one of the films we frequently make reference to is called Dead Poet Society, right? And so this, for those of listeners who are familiar with the movie, this episode is definitely much more Mr. Keating than J. Evans Pritchard, you know, <laughs> yeah, the guy who wrote the introduction to the poetry but book in the movie called Understanding Poetry. You know, I never, I never, um, <laughs> and fans of the movie remember he created like a graphing system and, you know, of how you can measure the greatness of a poem or whatever. And then uh, Mr. Keating made him rip it out and throw it away. You know, <laughs> we're much more in the Mr. Keating vein here. You know, John, I never, um, well, first of all, I just wanted to say to the listeners, I, I really, I know that you, you know, may dispute this a little bit, but I, I consider this a little bit more kind of quote unquote your topic because you have more, um, you don't like the word expertise, but like experience with reading poetry and you have turned to it at different times over the years. And I haven't as much as we'll get into. So this is like kind of, it's kind of cool. I think that's kind of cool that this is a, a, a topic that you can kind of lead us on. And uh, you know, you have more experience reading poetry than I do, but um, yeah, all that stuff that we started to learn in school and stuff about meter and pentameter and all that business. And uh the only one I ever, I, the only other one I remember is the sca- scansion. John, you remember that? Like scanning or like yeah. trying to somehow like uh, chart the poem, the, the meter of a rhythm of a poem with these little lines over that, man, I, I, that went yeah. in one ear and went out the other. And I, I still, I would never be able to fi- figure out or articulate what the point of that was. This episode has nothing to do with any of that. This is just kind of our raw take on poems that have impacted us. So it's going to be going to be wild. It's going to be kind of rambling. It's going to be all over the place, but I'm, I, you know, I got more excited about it as we delved into it. And as I got into the preparation, it's just, it's pretty interesting. So this episode could go anywhere. Yeah. It, you know, it, in some ways I, I, I consider it almost among the highest forms of writing because in, 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 you know, I've tried my hand at it myself, which is a whole other subject, but that's, you know, we're definitely not going to get into that. In this episode, you know, oh, man. I mean, I'm not going to embarrass myself further, uh, you know, but um, it, it's just something about it's like and the, the reason I say that it's it's it's, you know, the most economical, at least in theory, form of writing. You can, you know, really distill uh, an emotion or an idea down to its very essence. You know, just a few words that capture something that's very deep or profound. You know, poet, great poets are able to do that. Obviously, there are longer poems too um but something something about that there's kind of a purity to that that i really appreciate and uh you know but we'll get we'll get into that in a minute but you know like like you're talking about scansion and all the different you know technical parts of a poem and it's like you know again to, to evoke mr keating you know we're not laying pipe we're reading we're reading poetry right know? right a good one yeah it's like it makes it sound like engineering and that we are definitely not engineers, so that's not what this episode is about. Um, again, I go back to that biblical, you know, kind of analogy or metaphor of wrestling with the angel. You know, Jacob wrestling with the angel. It's like it's a it's a form of writing and reading that I really admire, but it's not easy. And I think a lot of this discussion is going to just be about, you know, what we've gotten through some of the some of that wrestling, some of that grappling, and uh, why it's why it's been a value for us so well, that is let me, yeah let me go cut ahead. in for just a second interrupt you for a second because it's interesting 
we'll get into this, but it's interesting you brought up that biblical metaphor of wrestling with the angel because I have a biblical metaphor of my own that I was going to bring up today nice. about the, about struggling with poetry, and it's a different one, and we'll see. So I'll float that out there, you know, maybe perhaps in a few minutes, and we'll see which one, uh, you know, appeals to which, to what listener. But that's interesting you brought that up. So, And it's a good one. You know, the wrestling with the angel, I, I think that's a good one as well. Especially when you consider that you're, you know, the, the end result of, of that particular wrestling match in the Bible was a blessing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, hopefully if you wrestle with some of the great, great work, works of the great poets or just poets that you admire, you come away with some kind of blessing or some kind of benefit or some kind of insight. And that's, I guess that tips my hand of kind of what I get out of it, but we'll get into that in a second. So let, why don't we uh, take a quick break, then we'll come back and talk a little bit about uh, what, what we've been reading and then just kind of dive in. All right, cool. So as always, we're just going to touch, you know, briefly about on uh, the books we've been reading now, just to kind of get into whatever's current in our particular worlds of reading. So, Jude, what have you been digging into lately? Well, I'm going to mention it quick. I was wondering if it would be okay. This is unscripted if I brought up two administrative notes really quickly also. That would work. Okay. Uh, One of them is just basic. Please check out our ways of getting contact, getting in contact with us. We post it on every description of the website. There, um, every description of each episode, there is a website. You can leave a voicemail and there's an email address. Check those out if you want to communicate with the Book Exchange Twins. And number two, mention the book um, that I'm reading. I, I was I didn't script this. I, I was wondering if it would be okay if we mentioned uh, some good news that has come up concerning one of the contributors to the show. Um, specifically a mu- musician. Would that be okay to kind of throw that out to listeners just to put it out in the world? Sure, why not? I, I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah, so I just wanted to mention really quickly, you know, um, both of our older sons, uh, Patrick is my son and John's son, Caleb, contribute music to the show. And just a real exciting piece of news has come down re- recently. Uh, John's son, Caleb, who performs under the moniker of Young Wolf, He's going to be performing his first fully uh, full set live in his first concert, basically his first full gig. It's in uh, St. Michael's, Maryland for anybody who happens to be in the Maryland area. It's going to be happening on August 13th. I know that may not appeal, uh, apply to a lot of the listeners, but I thought it might make some sense to just throw it out into the world. I'm sure we'll mention it as the date gets closer. But I just want to say as Caleb's godfather, I'm very proud of him and excited. This is a gig that he set up on his own steam and it's his first full live set. 
That's again going to be happening August 13th of this year in the St. Michael's, Maryland, coastal Maryland region. So I just wanted to mention that because I'm proud of him and he's a contributor to the show. So way to go, young wolf. And uh, John, do you have anything to say on that or should I just go right to the book? Well, I just thank you for bringing it up. It's exciting news in this house. And um, yeah, you know, he's, he's uh, contributed to the show. So we're, I'm obviously really proud of him. And I think it's an exciting opportunity for him to, to share some of his own, you know, uh, written music in front of a live audience. So that now, now your son's a little bit younger, but if there's any way, I don't know what the legal hoops are that we may have to, if there's any way we can get, you know, a little voice panda in there as kind of an opening kind of warm up <laughs> crowd. Uh, I'd be interested in talking to, you know, his representatives about that though. I would also be a little bit nervous because he might just, you know, take, pick up the crowd and run out the door and steal them away. But, uh, <laughs> Well, that would be be the dream to have a, you know, kind of like a a double sun, double bill there. But, you know, well, Well, Boyd's Panda has significantly less material, but, you know, maybe someday. But, um, yeah, I'm really proud of Young Wolf. And also, he's really good. He has a lot of really good music. So it's going to be a it's going to be a great night. So a shout out to our uh, musician contributor and John's son there for you and um so yeah i can hit my book really fast john because it's one of the books we're going to be talking about today i'm at the very end of an epic poem or a poem that's like book length it's called omeros and it's written by the Nobel laureate named derek walcott who's from the caribbean who's from the caribbean it's one of your favorite books john um and i'm at the i tried to get to the end i'm at the very end i'm like i'm like five pages from the end but you know, as we're going to get into like poetry, you know, you don't, you don't just like flip the pages, you know, you don't like read the last 150 pages in a white heat, like with some kind of paper airport thriller here, you know? Yeah. So uh, we'll talk about Omeros, but that's what I'm just finishing up right now. And then later in the show, we can talk about what I'm moving on to. So how about you? Well, I, I commend that, that choice. First of all, we're definitely going to talk about it a little bit later, but man, that's that's an all world book for me. Um, and you're right. It's not easy. You know, it's not fast reading. No, but, uh, it, it's just well, we'll get into that later on. But I'm glad that you took it on. And um, I think this is the first read for you. So way to go there. Um, and I literally just finished. I'll talk about what I just finished because I'm kind of in between books. But uh, the book I'm moving on to, you know, we'll get to a little later on towards the end of the show. But <laughs> Um, can you still hear me? Yeah. Yeah. So I just finished a, 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 sh- a short collection of stories from a writer I'd never read before. Uh, she lived almost her entire life in Brazil, although I found out that she was born in the Ukraine, which is interesting. A woman named Clarice Lispector. Uh, or, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, and like I said, a Brazilian writer. She was, you know, Born in the 1920s and I think died in the in the latter part of the 20th century. And uh, she was a pretty well-known and regarded uh, novelist and short story writer. I'd never read anything by her before. I just happened to see this slim collection of her stories. It's called Soul Storm, like all one word, Soul Storm. And it's just a selection of stories. And I just finished it. And they were interesting. They were very... Uh, strange and uh dealing with like the inner kind of the inner lives of their characters 
mostly in Brazil, but sometimes in other places. And they get really surreal at points, and they, they're all very, very short. So they're usually, you know, no more than about five pages long. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much still processing it. I really can't. <laughs> It'd be impossible to describe what these stories are like and also to, to even describe what my take on them are because I'm still, they're very strange. So it's kind of, it's always interesting for me to read, you know, a writer that I've never read from another country who, you know, is writing from another culture and just kind of see, it's, it's kind of reminds me of what we're going to talk about in a way, just kind of, you know, immerse yourself in that other culture, that other voice and see what you may be able to get from it, either, you know, on a, on a intellectual level, emotional level, imaginative level, whatever. So, uh, but these, these stories are very short and enigmatic and very strange. So I'm not sure I can really, you know, sum up how I, I felt about them, but I'm always, I'm always uh, happy to read broadly in terms of, you know, both geography and, you know, uh, writers I've never read. So, it, you know, that's always an interesting experience. So that's what I just read. And I don't think you've never read her, right? No, I've never read her. I have heard of her. She's a writer of international renown, but also, you know, fairly, you know, fairly obscure at the same time. So um, I've heard her name and, you know, sort of seen notices of her publishing new books, you know, before she died. I think she died. I think you said that. Um, yeah. And I know somebody like her work has been like collected and stuff like that. Like she has a certain reputation, but I've never read her. Well, you should check some of the description of some of her novels in particular. They, they get, they get really strange, uh, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that would be, it would probably appeal to you at some point at some level, like on the imaginative level, but just based on reading these short stories, I, I'm sure they wouldn't be really easy to read. Um, but anyway, I wish I had more to offer my listeners on that. But, you know, I literally just finished a book and it's just a very odd experience reading these short stories. So that's about all I can say. Um, but with that, you know, I, I don't think I think we can just jump into the topic. I don't think we have anything else we need to do. We can just dive right in. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I'm following your lead from this point further. OK, so like, as I said before, like I wanted to approach this obviously not in a dry academic way. We're not, we're not poetry experts, as we already said, you know, we're not going to sit here and analyze individual poems or, you know, comment on how they were constructed or whatever. This episode is just more about the experience of reading poetry. And as I said, how we've, how we've grappled with it. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this a little bit, um, obviously before we started recording and I, yeah, I can't, you know, it's not like our experience is going to be universal to everyone, but I was thinking, especially as, as people who, as we mentioned before, you know, grew up um, in a Catholic family, I was just thinking about the idea that, you know, poetry in some form, even though it seems like obscure to most readers, I would say, I think it's fair to say most readers don't spend a lot of time reading poetry, but it seems to, you know, when I thought about it in our own life, it seems to be, you know, it's not outside most people's experiences either. Either, Like, for example, if you grew up in the Catholic church, for example, you know, I was thinking like probably the earliest exposure that we had to any form of poetry at all would be in the scriptures and specifically the Psalms. You know, every time you go to mass, they read one of the Psalms, right? Uh -huh. um, and the Psalms are among the most beautiful poetry that was ever written. 
in any culture. So I was just thinking about that, like how if you if you happen to have grown up Catholic like we do, if you ever paid attention once in your life, <laughs> you know, and it's e very easy to drift when you're uh, sitting in mass. But if you've ever, you know, paid attention once to when they're reading one of the Psalms, whether it, maybe it's at a funeral or a wedding or something, you get a sense of, you know, kind of how how lovely the language is. Right. And I, I think which kind of brings me to my first thought. I have, I have two sort of thoughts about reading poetry generally. I, I feel like, and I thought, you know, we could just kind of riff on this a little bit and you could talk a little bit about, you know, uh, your own experiences in reading it. But I feel if there, you know, there's almost like, I don't want to use the word prerequisite, but I think there's a couple motivations uh, that may, you know, be at play for anyone to kind of pick up a poem and try to read it. One is, you really have to, you know, in order to appreciate poetry in any way, you really have to, you know, love language and kind of be in, be in it, do, read uh, out of pleasure for language, you know, rather than just to find out what happens next. You know, there's some people who read that way, you know, who are just kind of in it for the plot of the story. And that's totally fine. But if you're going to appreciate, if you're going to start to appreciate poetry in any way, you have to have, I, I think it's safe to say, you have to have sort of a fascination with, if not a love for, you know, language and the way it sounds, the way it kind of flows, the musicality of it. I think you're really going to grapple with or not be interested at all in reading poetry if you don't have an interest in, you know, um, beautiful language. I think I think that's safe to say. That's one thought. The second thought is, and for and this is maybe just for me personally, but I think. One thing that's involved in reading poetry is, is that there's almost like a discipline to it and not in the reading of it itself, but uh, I think what poetry both demonstrates and also encourages is, is observation, is the willingness to kind of slow down and look at something carefully or observe something carefully or think about it, you know, sort of, it's almost like stepping out of time and, um, you know, considering something right? It could be a flower, could be an animal, it could be a particular day you had, it could be an emotion you're feeling, whatever it is, there's something about poetry, you know, or poems that, you know, slow down time a little bit enough so that you can focus on something and maybe carefully observe it to see what, what insights might be there, or what value you may get from it, or what, what there is to appreciate. So uh, it's tough. It, it, right out of the gate, I'll just say it's tough talking about poetry without sounding either highfalutin or abstract. But to me, I think those are kind of like, if you have any interest at all in, you know, uh, beautiful language or um, language in general and the way it sounds and the way it flows and or, you know, stopping to observe, you know, something in the world in order to learn something from it. I think those are two aspects, or I don't even know if aspects is the right word, but I think those are sort of two motivations, as I said, that that may incline you to appreciate uh, reading poetry. So those are just a couple opening thoughts that I had. Do you have any reactions to that, or do you have any kind of opening thoughts that you want to share? Um, so I, you know, 
I mean, I, I, I find this, so I'm listening and I, I find this whole subject a little bit intimidating. I just have to say out of the gate, like a lot of people, I guess. And I'm afraid I won't be able to speak all that clearly about it. But, um, you know, I, I um, have not, I think I've allowed that intimidation of the form to keep me away from it more than you have in life. And so some of my thoughts feel like they're, you know, rather less formed than maybe yours are. But so I guess I'm going to be kind of responding to a lot of things that you're saying. But one thing about poetry, though, at least that I've sort of intuited over the years and then now in the last couple of weeks really have like, you know, gained a little bit, little bit of traction in terms of understanding is this idea of observation or seeing things. And I think I've always sort of felt that about this particular form that there was a quality of, I guess what I would say in a broad way, vision to this particular form, whether it's like observing things, as you said, because poems can be really simplistic, you know, taking the poet is looking at something and seeing it in a way that's not, you know, quite the same as everyone else, you know, and, you know, finding a different way to express what it looks like to their eye sort of physically, but also poets seem to me to have like kind of an interior vision as well, or like can see, um, you know, it's, it's hard to like inner landscapes or, you know, sort of see things the way, not only that they are, but the way things that they could be, or, you know, the way that they appear to their kind of poetic mind, which is different from how a normal sight or vista might appear to you or me. And poets have particular skill in kind of giving, I guess, expression to not only external vision, but also internal vision. And I feel like I'm already not, I feel like I'm already not making a lot of sense, but like, you know, they have poets, you know, work hard, it seems to me, on this gift of vision. And they have a way of seeing the world, I guess I'm saying, both in a direct manner, but also in an indirect manner, that's not like most people. And then we turn to them so to try to experience, I guess, that vision in the hopes that it'll give us some insights or, you know, break some ice within us or what have you, if I'm making any sense. Yeah, I, let me cut in right there because you are making sense. And I, it is hard to talk about. And like I said, without sounding, you know, totally abstract and you're trying to, I mean, it's a bit like the experience of reading poetry, you know, like the first right. time you read a poem, you're kind of like a lot of times you go, well, what does that mean? You know, yeah, what is takes, going on here? Yeah. And it takes concentration. And even us talking about it right now, it takes some concentration, but you're touching on an idea, that, and again, I am not an expert on this idea, nor this poet, but I do know that the one of the greatest poets in the English language, Gerard Manley Hopkins, from the 19th century, he talked, One, there was this concept that he talked a lot about, it's called Inscape, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, and, and basically, I'm not, I'm going to butcher sort of explaining it, but I think it's, it's a lot like what you were just attempting to describe. It's kind of, you know, seeing through the, the physical properties of something and seeing deeply into it, into, you know, the truth of a thing or what it might reflect, you know, that is right. beyond a physical attribute. Uh, what it might, you know, what insight you might see from it. It could be a landscape or with him, it was often, you know, particular animals even, you know, that he, and, and he was able to sort of like, 
he's a great example of 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 a keen poet's mind that could you know take an everyday object like a cow for example and uh you know kind of see through its attributes and kind of you know arrive at some other kind of observation or truth so i think that's you're not you're not at all what you're what you're exp- trying to express i think is 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 on point it's just it's just not easy you know to talk about but um Anyway, so I, I'm sure I derailed whatever it was that you actually wanted to say. Um, is there any other point that you wanted to make or otherwise I'll jump in with another thought? No, I mean, just, uh, you know, I, <laughs> who knows what I was trying to say, but no, that, that to bring that in, that, that idea from Hopkins, you know, I, listening to you talk about it, I can relate to it. And that, that is kind of what I'm saying, you know, it's like, you know, here's a, here's a, dandelion with the seeds blowing away in the wind and i see a dandelion the seeds blowing away but but what i really see something or what i'm seeing in this is x you know which is something else and it's like that really basic concept you know that we i think is like you said like a part of the motivation if anyone has it to crack into poetry and the the only other thing i was going to mention just for me historically because i haven't read as much poetry as you but you know, I, I um, was uh, or sort of gained some insight in this case from being in uh, graduate school, you know, almost 25 years ago or whatever it was, 30 years ago. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, as In terms of another motivation to read it, you talked about the, the love of language and that was sort of burgeoning in me at the time. And then I remember just talking with a lot of teachers. One of my first teachers in graduate school was a working poet. Um, named David Lehman, who was best known as the editor of the Best American Poetry Series. And he may still be, I don't know, but he did that for years. So he was like a working poet. Um, you brought up the Best American Poetry before, I think. And from people like him and also just peers, I remember um, getting the advice to um, spend time reading poetry in order to obviously gain more appreciation for the beauty of the language, but also to kind of add to your own stock, but I'm talking about in my life as a writer now, kind of add tools, if you will, to your stockpile of language that you have in your own, you know, arsenal, you know, you, it, so another reason to read it for writers is to kind of pick up dis- different ways of expressing things and gaining some of that insight in order to be able to expand our own grasp of the language. So that that's a factor in my history of poetry. That's the only other thing I wanted to say. Yeah. And um, again, I'll just repeat that, you know, there there are plenty of readers out there, good readers out there. And, and by that, I mean, you know, just people who, uh, you know, are serious about it and, you know, who appreciate more of a George Orwell or Hemingway approach. You know, uh, Ernest Hemingway wasn't really interested in flowery language, wasn't interested in, you know, coming up with the most beautiful or original way to say something. He wanted to get right. You know, it's like George Orwell kind of famously said, you know, good prose is like a window pane. You can just see right through it to whatever the action is. And that's totally legitimate way of writing and reading. But again, if you have any kind of affinity for language and the way it sounds and, and the idea of trying to express something in an original way or in a in a poetic way or a beautiful way, if that's appealing at all then, you know, poetry is a treasure trove, you know, 
I mean, like you were just saying, it's, I know that's appealing to you because you, you, you care about writing, you know, I hate to say in a pretty way, but in an artistic way. And anybody who's interested in that or drawn to that in any way, you know. Or just, in, or, or just in an original way, you know, in the way that not everybody else is doing it. Yeah. I mean, poetry is is the, the zenith of that kind of writing, really, you know, throughout the and I'm talking now. Now I'm talking about poetry across the, you know, millennia. You know, you people are still reading Homer <laughs> and, you know, Shakespeare for a reason does has no does not matter at all how old it is. If the beauty of the language still comes through and and right. and and the insights that you can get into our own nature, into the world, they also come through. You know, so again, for me, those two things are why I read poetry. Really, it's 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 the pleasure of reading the language. It's also, in my personal experience, I'm looking for insights. I'm looking for new ways to look at the world. I'm looking for truth in a way, you know, not with a capital T, but just something real that I can learn about the world that I may not have gotten to myself. And um, the other thing I'll throw in there, if, you know, for me personally, again, this is a personal observation, but for me, my interest and love of poetry is very much kind of aligned with, you know, uh, my spiritual life. And, um, you know, and in this way, that, that one of the things that, you know, I think poetry is uniquely suited, as I said before, kind of help us look at the world around us. And it, or look inside of ourselves, but look at the world around us and um, gain some insights from it that we might not have seen ourselves. You know, when I read a poet like Mary Oliver, who writes about the natural world, she writes in, you know, she writes very beautifully about the natural world, but also some of her lines, they'll just, they'll just make you stop and think, or they'll just kind of hit you with, with a, a spiritual insight, you know, um, that, that I couldn't have gotten, I couldn't have come up with on my own, but she just kind of hits it. Sometimes it's, it'll just hit you right in the face and it's, and it becomes almost like a, that's why I use the word discipline before, because it becomes like a, uh, like a meditation or, or there's a moment of insight that will provide, um, I don't know, wisdom is probably too great of a word, but provide uh, some food for thought or contemplation that I couldn't have, you know, brought to the table myself. And there are those moments when you read some of the great poets, I've had plenty of them, you know, where a line or two will just stop you up and you go, wow, I, I've just, I've never thought about that. And it may be in a poem about a bird, you know, but it'll take you to another plane. And I find personally, I find something very gratifying in that. And I think that, like I said, I think that connects to my spiritual life and my desire to, slow down sometimes and, um, you know, look at what's around me and try to grasp the meaning of things, not just what's going on, but what is the meaning, you know? So I probably, you know, I'm, in, I'm invoking the old man here probably and saying those things, but, you know, I think he was interested in those things. And uh, I know that for me, that's a, that's a huge reason why I continue to go back and read poetry. Yeah, and, and him, our dad, he had an interest in poetry kind of throughout his life, but, you know, at, including times that obviously predated us, you know, as a young man, he, you know, got into books of poetry, and I think he 
was interested in them for very similar reasons to those you just expressed. I mean, like to, you know, to me, I may be repeating something that we're already saying, but like poets have this ability. And I, 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 the more I read it, the more I understand how hard one it is, you know, it's not like they may have gifts that they're given, you know, in writing and in language and in vision observation, but to get to the point where they can express things that open that door for you or give you an insight into something else. They, they really, you know, people don't normally, I think, understand or grasp, you know, that they have to work very hard to get to that stage, you know, with the tools of their craft and, and they, poetry has a way of just giving expression to things that are inexpressible, you know, and, and that, I think that's what they're like working towards. And I think what that does is it sometimes in rare moments or in lucky moments, you know, the confluence between the poet and the reader can create a moment like that where that happens. But I think that's like not, you know, I think that's kind of a, a bit of a rarity, you know, for as much poems as they write or as much work as they do. What you're looking for is that moment where you bust that window open or you break that door down. I don't think it's easy to get to you know, for the poet or the reader. No. And, uh, you know, I've always thought about poetry. Like I think, and we're getting into, you know, part of this that I said we would, which is, you know, at the end of the day, why bother? Why should you grapple with it? Why should you try to read poetry? And again, if you have no interest in the things we, we've already mentioned, you know, maybe hard going, but if you do, or if you'd like to just even train yourself to slow down a little bit and observe the world around you and maybe, you know, uh, work on yourself a little bit. Think, think, think interiorly a little bit. You know, it's a good way to kind of do that. Um, and why it, why it's worth doing um, is is just for that reason. You know, it, 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 you know, I feel like personally, I think a lot of people are intimidated by it because they don't. You know, they'll pick up a poem and they'll read it and they won't know exactly what it means. But um, most of us are kind of rushing around focusing on whatever we have to do in our busy lives. And I think if nothing else, just reading a poem that may be recommended or a poet that you've heard of and you just want to try, it just kind of forces you to stop and, and think about something, you know, it's like, I, I don't want to sound too like, you know, the woo woo or too like, you know, quasi spiritual here, but there's, there's a reason why, you know, the practice of stopping and meditating, it's something that you know is common almost across all religions you know there's just a quality of that that i think is healthy mentally and i think it's also um uh, you know it it can yield insights um about yourself that you that you wouldn't otherwise have but you, you won't get them if you don't take the time to slow down sometimes even reading a poem and thinking about it gives you an opportunity to do that so anyway yeah. Well, can I pick up on that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, I don't want to slow you down too much. And I said I follow your lead. But just to pick up on that, I think you're right. And you touch on something which to me is interesting because, you know, I think I feel like for much of the rest of the episode, I'm going to I personally am going to focus more on like the last few weeks where I tried to force myself to a read more verse because I haven't read very much at all in my adult life and then try to, you know, think about like you said, why do it or why am I doing this or whatever? And, uh, you know, it, it kind of occurs to me, though, John, that like, you know, it 
it may be a more timely thing to do than ever in a way at this moment because of what you're talking about. Because what one thing that I discovered rather quickly, and this is elementary to you from having read it over the years, but I just haven't read as much, is how much concentration it required. And, and I had to bring myself back on track repeatedly. And you, and you do that while reading prose books, but this is different. Like you got to kind of be all there, you know, and I, and to, to even have a prayer, you know, of making sense out of what you're reading. And I, it occurred to me, I was like, you know, this almost in this day and age, it almost might be, you know, I would sort of mildly suggest it to other people. Cause I found that I just had to, like, you have to drop whatever else is on your mind and, you know, focus on the language and try to, grasp what the poet is saying and that's an interesting process that I, last couple of weeks it was not easy and then i know you'd like to move on john but can i we talked about a biblical metaphor before can i bring in the one that i thought of you know yeah before we get into more specific works maybe yeah. um because it's, it's so interesting to me you you thought of your own biblical metaphor and that you know the twin thing is happening but Again, twins are not exactly the same person. So you went one way and I went another. And so I love the Jacob wrestling the angel with the angel. The, the one that I thought of that applies that I was relating to a lot in the last three weeks or so, reading books of verse exclusively, was the uh, parable that Jesus told his followers. I should have looked it up, but I didn't. Um, the one having to do with scripture and the the. Um, the sowing of the seeds, you know, like a, like a, a, the parable of the sower. Yeah. You know, but like a Jesus explains, and he's talking about the word of God, you know, but he goes through the whole series, you know, you know, some of the seeds, the, you know, the word of God is like a sower sowing the seeds on the land to try to get them to grow or whatever. And some of the seeds fall on rot, rocks and don't take root. And some of the seeds fall in this windy area and some of them get blown away. And some of them fall in like fertile ground. And I kept thinking it's really like that. It, at least in my experience these last few weeks, it was like that for me, you know, in the sense that some of the language would like just not land, you know, like I just didn't get it. And I, I couldn't find the key. Some of it was kind of scratching at me a little bit and I was interested in it, but I didn't quite get there. And some of it would just kind of pass through and sort of fall into me in a sense and sort of immediately start, spreading out roots and those yeah. were cool moments you know and i thought well this is like that parable you know because like only a small percentage of it really did that but the ones that did it's a very different experience from you know prose or reading thrillers fiction whatever you know essays like we talked about a couple of weeks ago and i kept coming back to that i was like i kind of am starting to get this now you know when those moments when it falls through and in, into you and sort of puts roots in you it's not, it's very different from other forms of reading, you know? Yeah, I think that's great. You know, it's kind of, that's another kind of biblical illusion that um, I think it's, that's very much, by the way, you know, my own experience of reading almost every poet or poetry, piece of poetry that I've read, you don't always know what, what, what the poet is getting at. You often don't. And some of the language may land, so to speak, and some may not, but a couple things, you know, you may get one or two insights out of it, out of your first read, as you said, you may come back to it a month later or several years later and get something else out of it, mm -hmm. you know, and just that quality uh, that poetry brings to the table of being able to kind of penetrate and, you know, reveal something to you. That's an insight 
not from yourself, but you can apply it to your life somehow. I think it's really kind of magical about poetry, but it, as, as everything, as we've been saying all along and listeners can infer, it, it takes effort, you know? You yeah. You got to gotta work for it. Yeah. So, you know, like, uh, I don't remember exactly. One of the first poets that I really got into as a young adult was Seamus Heaney, you know, the Irish poet. I believe you may have given me one of his books because, and I don't, I don't remember why. I, mean, I don't remember exactly how I got to his poems, but I remember there's a book called The Spirit Level. Actually, I don't think you gave that to me. I think you gave me another one of his books. Yeah. But somehow I got, uh, somehow I must have read a poem of his and found it interesting. And I got, I picked up one of his books. I think it was one of the first, you know, collections of poetry I ever got. And I, I you know, started reading through them here and there. And, you know, some of them kind of spoke to me and some of them didn't. Um, but it, it kind of, you know, there was enough. I, there's one poem in particular, the last poem in that collection, which I, I think might come up later. I don't know because I you had mentioned it, but it's called Postscript. Right. And it was really just, it's a, are you going to bring that up later? So I, I won't, I won't get into that now if you are, but. Um, um, well, it's, it's on kind of a long list. I don't care when we bring it up, um, you know, because I think whatever point I was going to make about it is probably similar to yours. So if you want to talk about it now, go ahead. Well, I, I should have it in front of me, but I actually don't. But um, I just remember. You know, I I read it recently after getting married, and we had we had gone to Ireland for our honeymoon, and it describes taking a journey out to the west of Ireland along the flaggy shore. Is one of the lines that it says, right? Um, and it just spoke. It was I could relate to it because I'd just been in the west of Ireland, but also, you know, kind of it it it, it made me you know think about the whole experience in another way, you know, and uh, that really kind of sort of hooked me into his work and sort of what he does as a poet, you know, and, um, you know, I have uh, here and there, I have some examples of poems from, you know, different poets that I've have really meant a lot to me, you know, in my life. And one is Seamus Heaney. So I'm going to occasionally I'm going to read one, you know, so I thought I would offer one now. And um, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, and this is from his, his debut collection as a young man. He came out with a collection called Death of a Naturalist. It was his first one. And it was like kind of made an immediate impression, you know, on the literary world. But it, most of the poems are in it are about his sort of rural childhood and memories of his childhood and his people and his family, etc. But the last, the last poem is called Personal Helicon. And Helicon is, um, I believe, in Greek mythology, it's a, it's a stream. I should have looked this up, but it's 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 a, it's a stream that from which the muses originate, I think. And so it's kind of like the source of the muses, right? And mm -hmm. the muses, the muses are those who inspire artists, you know, kind of spirits that inspire artists. So he he's talking about this poem is called Personal Helicon. And he's saying this was this was my the, or the origin of my muses or, or what started me off on the path of being a poet. And it's the last poem in the collection. I thought it was really. So it's like this is about childhood memories, but it's also about why I'm a poet, you know. And so I, th I think it's a good example, of, you know, how poetry can, you know, be about one particular subject, but kind of transcend to something else, if that makes sense.
Mm-hmm. But and in this poem, he's talking about how he used to, you know, kind of like go run along in the fields, and he loved looking into wells, looking down into wells. So he says, as a child, they could not keep me from wells and old pumps with buckets and windlasses. I loved the dark drop, the trapped sky, the smells of waterweed, fungus, and dark and dank moss. One in a brickyard with a rotted board top. I savored the rich crash when a bucket plummeted down at the end of a rope. So deep you saw no reflection in it. A shallow one under a dry stone ditch fructified like any aquarium. When you dragged out long roots from the soft mulch, a white face hovered over the bottom. Others had echoes, gave back your own call with a clean new music in it. And one was scarcome for there out of the ferns and tall foxgloves, a rat slapped across my reflection. Now to pry into roots, to finger slime, to stare big-eyed Narcissus into some spring is beneath all adult dignity. I rhyme to see myself, to set the darkness echoing. And that's, that's how he ends this collection, his debut collection. And I thought that was just, that just really, it like kind of blew me away. You know, how he could take this memory of as a child looking down into wells. And then the last few lines, he says, you know, I, I'm, that's what I'm still doing. But I do it through writing poetry. Right. Because I, right. I want to hear that echo back to myself and hear what it says. Yeah. So, it's, a, it's great. Uh, that, yeah. So Seamus Heaney, I mean, he has a kajillion amazing poems. I was actually fortunate enough to see him read, to go and hear him read. Uh, in Philadelphia, only a couple years before he died, you know, this is long after he won the Nobel Prize. He's a world famous poet. And I don't believe he read that one, but he read a number of poems that I really appreciate. And it was wonderful just to hear him read it in his own Irish kind of brogue. And uh, that was really something else. And just that experience was one of one of my favorites in terms of, I guess, literary experiences. But um, so I want to get to some specific examples. And that was one of them for me. But yeah. I, sorry, I was just going to say, you know, your it was your interest in Seamus Haney that got me interested in Seamus Haney a little bit. I haven't read as much of him, but you shared with me the poem Postscript at the time. And I, I had been fortunate also to travel to Ireland myself. That's an example of, a, of reading a poet that uh, reading a poem that really got to me. But because it connected with an experience I had had but sort of put into language something when I was there also. Obviously, that does not apply to all poems, but I just remember very vividly, you know, you just read that great poem, um, Personal Helicon, and then from, you'll remember these lines from Postscript. I remember it, sometimes it's just just a one odd phrase that you just lodges itself in your brain. You can't forget it. If you remember the line from Postscript um, where he describes it, um, the earth lightning of a flock of swans. Right. I remember hearing that line and being like, you know, that is nuts that, that, you know, he captured something about that seeing a flock of swans. I just never heard it put that way. And then yeah. you'll remember, of course, cause it has such an incredible ending. It, it's sort of the, the poem and the collection ends with this 
individual, the poet standing on the coast of Ireland, you know, which is so gorgeous and windswept and just beyond description. And there's that great final line of the poem where he says, you know, big soft buffetings come at the car sideways and catch the heart off guard and blow it open. And right. that's the way the book ends. And I remember reading that and thinking like, I, that is it. You know, like I, I, I was, whatever you experienced, you know, standing on an unbelievable, gorgeous coast like that, he caught it in words, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. remember just being astonished by that. You know, that's exactly what happens when you're in a this metaphorical way, when you're taking in the view from the coast of Ireland, you know, because I've been there and you've been there, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really amazing. You know, he's talking about something physical, but this idea of the heart being blown open so that whatever needs to enter can enter is, is just, that's just an that's a insight and it just elevates it to another level. You know, and that's a yeah. kind of, you know, it's like reading poetry is almost like being like a miner or something or like a, a paleontologist. You know, where you put in all this effort to dig around every once in a while, you find something of great value, you know, but right. then you then you keep it with you forever. You yeah, know? and it's all worth it, you know, <laughs> it's all worth it. Yeah. So we're going to get into some more specific examples in a minute here, I think, um, and then talk about some other, you know, books that have meant or poems that have meant something to us. But I'm going to take a quick break. How about that? OK, that sounds good. All right. assume you can hear me fine yes i can all right well let's just keep going do you have I, I think you had a couple specific examples either poems or uh experiences that you wanted to relate or books that you've read did you have anything specific you wanted to share well i'll tell you what um Not i'm kind what? of i'm pulling an audible here okay so i had a couple specific poems i was going to cite but I think I think what I'll do is I'll skip those, John. And I hope this this is going to work for you. I think I'll go right into. There were three poets that I wanted to share a little bit from and talk about. If we get to them, and if we don't, that's fine. And then I, you know, I think it would. I would like to skip, save a little time to talk about this book, Omeros, that we brought up earlier, that I thought could be kind of a joint thing because I know it's one of your favorite books, and I just just am finishing it, like I said. But um, sure. what if I did this? Um, if I, I think I'm going to do it differently than I planned. So my plan was this, and we're doing this live guys. So just kind of hang with us. But, uh, I think what I'll do is for each of the poets, at least that we get to, what I'll do is I'll share a little bit, a tiny piece of their work first, and then I'll give you some of my thoughts around reading their work recently, and then have you kind of react to it for my, for my part of this. Does that make sense? Yeah, great. I, I'm, I'm going to enjoy it. Let's go. Okay. So I really wanted to 
you know, dive into verse for like the two or three weeks we had planned to prepare for this. And as I've been saying, I've done, I don't think I've ever had a period in my adult life where I read just verse only for two or three weeks. So it was very interesting. I, I had lots of poets I, that I thought of that either that I learned from you or that I had in my mind. Some of them I didn't get to. There were um, at least two female poets that I wanted to read and couldn't find books by at the library and just didn't get to in time. One was Mary Oliver, one of your favorites. And the other was Ur Ursula Le Guin, who, uh, who was a, famous for science fiction, but I know she was a very gifted poet as well. I didn't get to those two. The first person I'm going to read to is the woman that I did get to, and her name is Louise Gluck. I looked that up. She's come up on the podcast before. She's a recent winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature from the United States. Um, and I found a volume of her poetry. It's fairly recent. It won the National Book Award called Faithful and Virtuous Night. And that was the first work of poetry that I read preparing for this episode. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a short segment from a poem of hers called Visitors from Abroad, which I think is representative of the kind of poet that she is that I've learned so far anyway. And so this particular poem is not very long. It's two pages, but it's divided into four numbered sections. Okay, so I'm going to read section two and three. I have a feeling it'll resonate with you, John. I'll give you some thoughts about, you know, segueing from there into my general thoughts about, about Louise Gluck, at least the work that I've read, and then I'll, I'll give you a little chance to react to it. So here we go from a poem called Visitors from Abroad. Two, my mother and father stood in the cold on the front steps. My mother stared at me, a daughter, a fellow female. You'd never think of us, she said. We read your books when they reach heaven. Hardly a mention of us anymore. Hardly a mention of your sister. And they pointed to my dead sister, a complete stranger, tightly wrapped in my mother's arms. But for us, she said, you wouldn't exist. And your sister, you have your sister's soul. After which they vanished like Mormon missionaries. Three. The street was white again all the bushes covered with heavy snow and the trees glittering encased with ice. I lay in the dark, waiting for the night to end. It seemed the longest night I had ever known, longer than the night I was born. I write about you all the time, I said aloud. Every time I say I, it refers to you. So that's the sampling from Louise Gluck's poem called Visitors from Abroad. Um, I thought, John, I read this whole volume of poems. I thought they were very mysterious. They were very mm -hmm. beautiful like that was. There's frequent allusions to a lost sister, which, you know, I sort of assumed from the beginning was someone that the poet herself lost, you know, either before she was born, you know, or, and that poem seems to make it clear that, you know, She's been at least gone a long time. And there's also frequent allusions to a surviving brother who she appears to have had kind of a, you know, somewhat strained relationship with over the years. Uh, this is a poet who, you know, at this point, she's uh, elderly still with us. So at this point, you know, this book was two or three years ago. So she's, you know, at a rather seasoned stage of her career. And obviously she just won the Nobel Prize. I was really 
impressed and kind of amazed with that sec section I just read you and a number of other parts of her poems in this very short volume. But I would describe them as very nebulous, very mysterious. You can only just kind of catch glimmering glimmers of some of those autobiographical details from her own life. Some of them were, most of them were brief. Some of them were in a prose structure, one paragraph or two. Some of them weren't. And they seem to have a lot to do with, you know, uh, mortality, you know, people you've lost, people you have not lost, time and the passage of time. And I found the whole collection to be kind of a big mystery, but a very fascinating and interesting one. So, you know, I, I just want to throw it over to you. Like, how do you react to that poem? Have you read Louise Gluck before, John? I was trying to remember if you told me that. And how does, you know, how does that strike you? Well, okay. So I, I didn't, when she won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, I, did, I, I heard the name and that's it. I didn't know anything about her. Uh, I am not even sure I knew she was American. So I sort of got in it, you know, as we often do with Nobel Prize winners. Yeah, I sort of got interested in who she was, wanted to learn something about her. I re read some things about her. It kind of piqued my interest. So I ended up I ended up buying one of her collections, which is that same one that you just mentioned. Um, so I have it. I have not read it. Okay. <laughs> you know, so I can't really react. This is my first exposure to anything that she's written, basically, even though I, I kind of and I rarely do this. But I, but, you know, I, I was interested enough after reading about her that I bought one of her books. Um, so, but my, I mean, those, that, those little segments that you read are, are quite powerful and they just seem to have so much kind of personal history, you know, swimming underneath the, or flowing underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, very melancholy, you know, there's like a kind of a lot of like hidden pain in there. Um, and especially in the first part where her parents seem to be at least her mother, kind of cold you know yeah and like, like disappointed with her yeah yeah and which is amazing to think about this you know now nobel prize winning poet and she's like you don't even you, you know we don't really know anything about your books or <laughs> you know there's just like uh it, she's clearly the poet is clearly <laughs> grappling with as we all are in some ways with the influence of our parents and wanting to you know uh make our parents proud or be right. meaningful in their eyes or whatever and then for her to double down and bring up the dead sister seems particularly cruel <laughs> or me yeah. you know, or uh, so it just the impression I get is like, wow, this this woman had, has had a lot to deal with psychologically with her parents. <laughs> and uh, I don't envy her, you know, uh, trying to move throughout the world and across her life while bearing that kind of freight or, or that kind of baggage. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Well said. And then, you know, in the second segment, which may have nothing to do with the first, but you almost get the idea that she's just lying awake, you know, just still trying to bear with some of what, you know, these uh, feelings that she has from that encounter. I don't I don't know if that's true, but that's the impression that I got. Yeah. 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 And it just, uh, you know, that that's it's an example. I mean, this one I grappled with maybe a a little more than all the the other three that I that I've read. I, I'm not sure. It's hard to quantify, but you know, it had this freight, like you said, 
and it just you know it was an example of poetry you read it and the, there's so much going on underneath it and you're like you know well first of all that's just a lot to handle like you said but also how do you just how do you distill all that stuff you're mulling over into just like basically a few lines you know that's uh, capture something about it that's just uh yeah i could just i don't know much about poetry but she said you know you could tell you're reading the work of somebody who's really you know, had worked a long time in the craft and knew what they were doing, you know? Yeah, and it brings up something, too, like that we've been touching on, which is that it, it takes incredible gifts to be able to do that, to be able to pack so much psychology and emotion into a couple lines like that. But so there's that, you know, we may never be able to do that ourselves, but but there's also, you know, but uh, it, in reading those lines, you know, the gift of being able to express it is one thing, but in, in, in that expression, you know, a lot of people can tap into some of those same emotions. In other words, uh, I can imagine a lot of people reading those lines and thinking, uh, you know, this is really heavy stuff between a daughter and her mother. And I can relate to some of this, or this right. reminds X, you know? So it's like, that's part of the value of that you get out of reading poetry is that, that these, these incredible writers are able to, capture some universality out of capture universality out of the particular. And so this is, this is very particular to her own life. Yet I think a lot of people could, a lot of women, maybe older women could read that those lines and, and think, yeah, you know, I had a fraught relationship with my mother or I understand some of the nuances there, or that reminds me of this conversation I had once or whatever, you know, and that's, that's really, kind of an amazing thing about poetry that it's able to do that yeah and the, and the other thing about it is and we can move on but you gotta it's just really interesting craft in so many ways like you can't like you know it's not it's not popular like you in order to get that you got to meet them on that hill you know yeah uh, the poet and so that means you got to do the work of reading it and you gotta and you know there's so few people i feel like who who would invest that time or do that. And yet these people with these incredible gifts are toiling away at this, you know, they ain't making anything, you know, like, and, you know, and it's probably costing them a lot. And yet they still do it because of their love for the form and love for the craft and just whatever it is that's in poets that drive them to set these things down. It's pretty amazing. You know, uh, when you pit it against whatever rewards there are, yeah, yeah, it's certainly not something that you that you put your hand to in order to uh, you know make a couple billion dollars or whatever. Right, get rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not that at all. But there's something, and I'm sure there's something in the uh, in the pursuit of you know trying to t trying to uncover insights through the act of expression. You know that almost not an addictive quality, but there must be something, something powerful in that. And the fact that you can then share it and other people can have, you know, not the same experience, but can draw their own insights from it is, is pretty amazing. But I guess that's true of most forms of art. You know, like if you're a songwriter, you write a song, it's about something particular, but it, for some people like Bob Dylan or Springsteen or something, you know, it speaks to millions of people around the world, you know, for their yeah. own. And for a lot of the same reasons, you know, I mean, Bob Dylan is a poet, <laughs> you know, he's able Absolutely. to tap. Yeah. yeah. So, 
Yeah, you know, we're kind of ping-ponging all over the place here, and I do. I think it would be fun to, to kind of uh, – I know you spent a good amount of time. Well, you probably – I think you have a couple more you wanted to bring up, but I we should try to carve a little time at the end to talk about, uh, you know, reading Derek Walcott. I think that would be a fun way to wrap this up. I agree. Yeah, I think it's worth it. Yeah. But what else did you have? You said you had a couple that you wanted to bring up, and that was one. Oh, I didn't know if I was going to be turning, you know, going back and forth with you. Do you have any specific, you know, poets you want to talk about in between, or do you want me to keep going? Uh, I mean, that's the tough part. I got tons, you know, there are lots of poets that I wanted to bring up. We're never, you know, it's way too broad of a topic, you know. Uh, and I, I, I sort of feel like, you know, I could bring up lots of examples of poems that I wanted to share, but they're kind of getting at the same thing, you know, that they're talking about something specific. Um, but you know, really the meaning that you can draw from it is more universal. You know uh -huh. what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I do want to bring up, you know, I have to bring up one of my favorite all time poets who's, is not very well known and you're, you're, you're going to shake your head. You're going to nod your head at this cause you've heard me talk about him a lot. And, and he, he was a Welsh priest named, named R.S. Thomas. Right. And his poetry just means so much to me. And, he, and most of his poems are relatively short, but he, he kind of, so he was a priest serving in a very remote area of Wales. I don't think he's originally Welsh, but he sort of transferred there and he's is, is sort of spent his whole life ministering as a priest there. So he writes, and this is, again, it's, you know, uh, aligns with my own interest, but he writes a lot about God and the spiritual life. Um, but he was, he spent his almost his entire career ministering in a very like I said a very remote part of Wales among very poor people and he really he is not a gentle happy you know cuddly poet at all he really grapples with the mysteries of religion and God and ministering to people and living trying to live with other people so I would say overwhelmingly his poems are about God or prayer or something having to do with the spiritual life or they're about rural Welsh people and rural Wales, or they're about the ways that technology is starting to creep into the world and how it's changing the world. Those are sort of his three themes that he comes back to again and again. But I don't know what it is about R.S. Thomas. He had this, in my opinion, an incredible ability to write about something and get at a very, very deep truth that usually has to do with the relationship between man and God or the lack of the lack of God, because he grappled very much, even though he was a priest, he grappled very much with the whole idea of God. Right. But he, he wrote these very short poems often that are just incredibly powerful. And I could, I mean, there's about a 500 examples that I could give you. And I had, I really struggled to pick one, but I picked one. Finally, I basically threw a dart at a dartboard. And I picked one and it's called the Belfry. So he's talking about a bell tower. And, you know, it's something, you know, he's in a rural part of Wales. So you can imagine old stone, old stone churches that have, you know, laid, lain kind of dormant for decades, you know, as being part of his landscape. But he takes his image of the Belfry and he just takes it to a whole other level entirely. And, and this is what he does all the time. But I, you know, I just turned to this one. I found it very powerful. So I'll read it. But 
So it's called The Belfry. And it also, he's, he's one of the more accessible poets. He's not hard to read, uh, but mm -hmm. you'll see that there's a lot of power. And he, he just had this incredible ability to, to get, get to something very deep. So this is The Belfry. I have seen it standing up gray, gaunt, as though no sunlight could ever thaw out the music of its great bell. Terrible in its own way, for religion is like that. There are times when a black frost is upon one's whole being and the heart in its bone belfry hangs and is dumb. But who is to know? Always, even in winter in the cold of a stone church, on his knees, someone is praying, whose prayers fall steadily through the hard spell of weather that is between God and himself. Perhaps they are the warm rain that brings the sun and afterwards flowers on the raw graves and throbbing of bells. That's <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just, to me, that's an immensely powerful poem that gets at so much. And notice how the imagery of the Belfry, you know, starts, go, runs through from beginning to end. Like that incredible line, the heart in its bone Belfry hangs and is dumb. I, I, I mean, that, that line just, absolutely stops me in its tracks in my tracks yeah. every time I read it <laughs> just yeah. an incredible an incredible image I I don't know if you want to react to that at all but it's it's almost hard to take it in well this is cool because R.S. Thomas was my second poet actually oh I'm um, sorry gosh no 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 I think that's great because I want I really wanted to go back and forth I just don't want to monopolize the time and okay. you, got, good. you got me into him anyway. And, uh, you know, again, this is becoming a common theme on our podcast. The volume I have, I stole from you. Selected nice. poems. And, you know, I agree with everything you said. Like, th that image of the, the you know, it's, it's almost better, better than anything I was going to bring up. But the, 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 of a, a human heart hanging in a bone belfry is so R.S. Thomas. That's what these poems are like. And John is absolutely right. They're not. Like you can grasp that. They're not hard to read. Many of them are very short. Um, they're not hard to read in the in the understanding sense. Sometimes they're hard to read in the wrestling with faith and or the mysteries of the universe sense, you know, like you yeah. know, because they're they're pretty hard hitting. And uh I I mean I I have the same reaction. You know, you liked his poetry so much and you were so like um you know, hit by it. I mean, that's the word I want to use. Like it kind of socks you in the face, you know, a lot of his po poems. Uh, and um, also the, the struggle behind them sort of hits you. Like you, not only are you kind of hit in your own gut, but you feel like the, the gut punch that he took either to compose the poem or to get to the place where you had to compose the poem, you know, and I, I'll just counter with like, so I'm not even going to read a full poem, even though it's very short, but Cause I, I'm with you. Like I kind of picked, I've got this little, it belongs to you. It's a little about a hundred, 116 page collection of some of his best work, I guess, based on, you know, who knows. And there's a poem called kneeling. And it's basically about a bunch of people in a church on their knees, waiting for God to say something, including the guy who's the priest, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, you yeah. get the sense in the poem that he's waiting as much as anybody else. And then at the very end, I won't even read the whole thing. He just basically sets it up. He, you know, it makes it clear that 
there's these people in a quiet place in the in the church waiting for God to talk somehow, including the preacher who's supposed to be communicating whatever God has to say. And then it just says, prompt me, God, but not yet. When I speak, though it be you who speak through me, something is lost. And the meaning is in the waiting. And that's how the poem ends, you know? Man. And you just, there's so much communicated there, you know, but the sense is that the priest is kind of as clueless as everybody else. And that's what you get from many of R.S. Thomas's poems. And he's a poet where you can really feel, I guess, communicated through his language. Not only who he is, but where he came from, you know, the, the, the arid, you know, or like the uh, raw, um, un, you know, undecorated, you know, um, unadorned, craggy land in Wales. And this kind of comes through in his work, you know, without any of his own contribution almost. You know, it's like, I guess it, it feels like it's really bred in the bone, you know, with yeah. what he, with the work he does. And it's pretty amazing. Like, you know, I mean, I, you know, we're from Chicago. You don't feel Chicago whenever we say anything, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like yeah. it's just, it's just like this presence in his, in his bones somehow and in his blood and in his brain that just it's it's part of his work it's really incredible like you know he's, he's really worth reading but it's not it's not easy you know no and yeah he had just such a gift with like images that you know were part of his world but you know they kind of like like i'm, I'm there's so many examples there's another poem of, of his called the empty church which i just happened to flip through in this book and you know the imagery here listen to this it starts like this. They laid this stone trap for him, enticing him with candles, as though he would come like some huge moth out of the darkness to beat there. Ah, uh, he had burned himself before in the human flame and escaped, leaving the reason torn. He will not come any more to our lure. <laughs> no, <laughs> he's talking about God and Jesus. It's just crazy, you know. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. and it's it's like kind of harsh and kind of frightening almost, but it's also, I don't know. There's, there's something about the, his writing that, that is almost fearful in a way, but yeah. it also takes the spiritual very, very seriously. And um, not too seriously, but I mean, it, it, it takes it seriously enough that, so that you get the sense that he was really grappling with the big questions. And I, I really appreciate that, that about him. But anyway, we right. can move on. R.S. Thomas could be, you know, at least a whole episode to himself. And did you have another one you wanted to, another poet you want to talk about briefly? Yeah, I can talk about one quickly. Um, so obviously, you know, there's so much in this topic and not all poets are men and not all poets are white. So I'm going to bring up a black poet. Um, I had an experience, I guess, that was like something like, maybe not quite the same, but something like what you had with uh, when you had the opportunity to see Seamus Haney read some of his work. One time when I was in graduate school, I got to, we had to attend these lectures from writers. It was like kind of a class, quote unquote. You had to go to a certain number per semester. And one night there was a poet who was reading from his work and I didn't, you know, wasn't that into poetry and didn't know a single thing about the poet. And it happened to be 
poet I'm going to bring up next, and his name is Yusuf Kumanyaka. Um, but he, he sounds foreign, but he's an American poet. Um, he's from Bog Bogalusa, Louisiana. And um, this guy came into the room, and I didn't know this at the time, but he also happens to be a Vietnam veteran. And many of his poems have to do with war. Not all of them, but many of them do. Um, but this was an example of somebody who, you know, I didn't know him from Adam and Eden, John. But And I didn't know much about poetry, wasn't that interested in it. And I was there basically to fill this quote of lectures I had to attend. But this guy started reading and, I, and it was one of it was it was like a really a St. Paul moment, you know, where shackles started falling from my eyes as soon as literally as soon as this guy started reading. And it, it had so much to do with and it's the same with um, the point I was going to bring up is the same with uh, Seamus Annie and R.S. Thomas, because, you you know, you've exposed me to some recordings of R.S. Thomas when he was still alive, reading his particular poetry and his particular vernacular and accent, you know. Yeah. Um, this black man comes in, you know, he's probably in his 60s at the time because it was a while ago, maybe late 50s. Um, and his hair was gray and he was graying and he was very friendly and soft spoken. He started reading in this deep southern Louisiana accent um, in a very low register voice. And the way he read his poems, uh, it absolutely blew my head off listening to this guy read his poems. So there's no way that I can do his work justice the way he does it when he read them, but it was such a huge part of that experience. But I became a, a big fan of his work and, and, you know, you know where this is going, but I'm not going to read the whole poem. Oh, man. <laughs> but there's one poem in particular he read, which just almost changed my whole life, you know, and definitely changed my view of poetry. But before I get to that, just to like one of his poems, just to give you an example of his poetic skill. One of his poems is a sonnet and it's called Ode to the Maggot. And it ends with this great line. This is an example of the kind of poet Yufus Kamanyaka, Yusuf Kamanyaka is. And the, the last, I don't even have it in front of me. I just, I never forgot it. It ends like this little master of earth. No one gets to heaven without going through you first. And that's the end of his poem called Ode to the Maggot, which I just think, I just think is an amazing line, you know, for obvious reasons. Anyway, I'll just, I'll, I'll get to it. He came in, he read, it just blew my head off. And one of the poems that blew me away the most was a poem called Thanks. And it was about, it still moves me like my, my skin is prickling as I talk about it. It's about yeah. Vietnam War and it's basically, it's kind of a prayer, although I don't know where he stands in terms of religion in which in the, through the course of the poem, he's saying, thanks. I, I like to think to God, but it's kind of addressed to kind of some universal spirit or whatever. And he's saying, thanks for these things that I noticed in the heat of battle that kind of saved my life. So the, the first line is thanks for the tree between me and a sniper's bullet. And then there's a, a lot of other um, references to things that he noticed in the middle of co of combat. But the the line, and I can still hear his voice reading this. Um, and I'll just read a few lines, but the, the last one I read is the one that just kind of blew me in the face. Yeah, like I know I, I know where this is going. <laughs> um, so you know what? Uh, so he's thanking somebody for saving his life by noticing small things in the middle of, in the middle of a firefight in the Vietnam war. 
He says, what made me spot the monarch riding on a single thread tied to a farmer's gate, holding the day together like an unfingered guitar string is beyond me. Maybe the hills grew weary and leaned a little in the heat. Again, thanks for the dud hand grenade tossed in my feet outside Chulai. I'm still falling through its silence. And I remember hearing him read that, and it just kind of blew my head off, you know. And that I, I don't know what else to say. Like, I, it was just such an eye-opening moment for me. And I thought, oh, that's what poem poets are doing. You know, so yeah. I had to bring up Yusuf Kumayaka. And by the way, I, I've got to say to listeners, you can find rec audio recordings of him on YouTube, reading his poems and reading thanks in particular. It is awesome. So if you're so inclined, take about two minutes, find a recording of Yusuf Kumayaka reading the poem. Thanks. You're not going to regret it. So over to you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad that that experience came up because I knew it was it was a kind of a transformative one for you in terms of your appreciation for poetry but that you told me about it almost immediately and that you know I, I immediately just hearing those lines they gave me goosebumps too that 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 image of a dud hand grenade falling at his feet and and then coupling it with I'm still to this moment falling through its silence is just astonishing it's just, it is, and also, and also, just the, the expression of gratitude for it, I think, is just amazing too. Yeah, and it's just you know, you would never, you know, of course, you would never forget that moment, but to express it like I'm still falling through the silence is not only beautiful, but it, you know, profound. And the idea, like I'm falling, like you know, like yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm out of control in a way, like I don't know where I'm going to land. I'm still in the act of falling. Right. It, it makes such sense because you, you, you know, you're literally on the threshold of death. And for some reason, you didn't cross over. It's just in how you, you know, just kind of, to me, it sort of evokes like I'm still grappling with that, which anybody would be. Yep. Now, why, why, why didn't it explode? Why am I still here? It's just incredible. And yeah, his voice reading it because you, you had me go and listen to it. It's, it's, it's amazing. But that that is, you know, what we're getting at. Like there are these moments both in reading and sometimes hearing poetry, you know, that just break through, you know, like a sun breaking through the clouds, the sun breaking through the clouds and provide you with some insight or provide you with some, I don't know, inspiration or that you never would have had. And and again, maybe you have to just be interested in, in words and language in order to get that. Some people maybe feel like I, you know, I don't have the time to go and seek out these experiences. But um, if you're interested in it at all, poetry is a great, you know, I would call it, if not a spiritual experience, akin to a spiritual experience, you know, even for somebody who's secular, you know, reading a poem can almost be like a, a secular prayer, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah. I get that. So, I mean, there's so many other poets I would have liked to, you know, I'll mention a few that have meant a lot to me, you know, in my, in my reading poetry, you know, what I've already mentioned Mary Oliver a number of times on this podcast, but her poetry is extremely accessible and it's almost always about the natural world and anybody who appreciates nature and would want to, again, like I was saying before, 
you know, just take a little time to think about the natural world and what it might have to offer us. She would be like the first person I would direct you to. Um, although there's another American poet is one of the greatest American poets, in my opinion, in, in, in our time. He's no longer alive, but I think there's a direct line between him and what Mary Oliver is doing, and that's Richard Wilbur. Mm. He writes very beautifully about the natural world, but about so much more about family, about he too was a, a veteran. He fought in World War II. He's got some very memorable poems about that. He wrote for decades. There's still a four-line poem in my head of his that has never left. And it, you know, uh, you've heard it before. I can say it again right now. But it kind of captures what he, he has kind of a whimsical side to him, but he often wrote about the natural world. But there's also always just that one line that kind of like leads you to a little bit of a deeper place. Do you know where I'm going with this? Um, I think so, but keep going. Yeah, so I, I never forget he's got a I don't memorize poems usually, I probably should, but there's one of his that I've never forgotten. It's four lines, it's called on having misidentified a wildflower. And let me see. Now, I set, I set this up. Let me see if I can remember. Uh, it goes, and the whole poem is this. A thrush, because I had been wrong, burst loudly into song in a world not cold, not lonely, not governed by me only. And that's, that's the entire poem. Great you know? job. But it's just like, you know, there's, hey, there's this, you know, I, I, you know, thought this was this flower. And then I heard this bird and he reminded me that I'm not in charge at all. And that there's some, there's, you know, something greater that's in, in charge. You know, it just kind of elevates to a spiritual plane very quickly. Yeah. And that's it's a not, great example of what you're talking about. It's a really amazing. Four lines and it's, and it's light, but yet profound at the same time. So anyway. Richard Wilbur, another one that's great. Uh, you, uh, you know, I, I, I can't go through this episode without mentioning Walt Whitman, one of the greatest American poets who ever wrote. And reading Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, he, he basically has one work, and it's this long, long, long work of poems about America. I feel like every American alive at some point should dip into those pages and because there's so much passion and kind of like pride in being American. But also... Uh, this is they're written largely during the time of the Civil War. So a lot of like lamentation about some of the problems with America. It's still it's like an American scripture. Really, it really is. And you can open almost any page of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass and get some incredible imagery from it. Yeah. So, would you believe I've never read that? I've never read anything by Walt Whitman. That's a crying shame. Well, I mean, you've 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 heard some Walt Whitman from uh, Dead Poet Society. Because it comes up there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Captain, my Captain, which is famously, you know, one of his many poems about Abraham Lincoln. It's also um, integral to the plot of Breaking Bad, you know, Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. That's true. Um, yeah, but it's it's really a, a seminal American work. Uh, but it's long. I mean, it's like hundreds and hundreds of pages. But anyway... There's a lot of other poets that I could mention, but th those are just a few. Um, I do want to, unless you have other stuff you want to talk about, I know there's one book in particular that, that you just read, and that's one of my favorite books, and we could maybe, you know, how do you cut off this discussion? But maybe we could sort of <laughs> cap it by talking about that particular book, 
unless there's anything else that you want to bring up. No, I think it's a good, I think it's a good way to end because we can't really end it, but also it's just this one. It's a little bit closer to home for you and me. I know this is one of your favorite books. I really wanted to read it for many years because of that, you know, just to, so it's like kind of a personal choice between us. And then, and having read it, I, I have some of my own thoughts that I'm sort of eager to share with you. So I think it's a good way to, and it can kind of just be our, you know, brief commentary on sort of epic length works or book length works of verse. Not that, you know, not that we're getting anywhere near the, under the surface of that particular mountain, but. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm ready to dive into it. Did you want to kind of just start with your impressions of it or how did you want to? Well, I guess, I guess, yeah, because I, you know, I'll, I will start, you know, cause I want to have some questions for you now having like okay. kind of finished with it. So the book's called Omeros and I, I looked up the pronunciation of that. I actually, the first thing I found said, said Omeros, but then I found a YouTube video of Derek Walcott reading from the first chapter because this book has chapters, 62 chapters. Yeah. Um, it's broken into seven books and has 62 chapters. And anyway, when he started reading it, he called it Omeros. So that's what I'm going with. Um, I would have, even having just finished, I would have a very tough time saying what this is about. Derek Walcott, I don't know much about him. I know he's from the Caribbean. And this, this uh, work, book-length poem called Omeros is set in on the island of St. Lucia, primarily, and is about the Caribbean. Now, I have to say to our listeners, I have never been anywhere close to the Caribbean. I mean, the <laughs> closest I've ever been is Tampa, Florida. And I think this would really, you know, and I've never really thought much about going to the Caribbean, really. Um, although, to, to married to my wife, she really wants to go. She's been there many times. I think I would have benefited from knowing something about what the Caribbean looks like, but I don't because I've never been anywhere near it. Um, but anyway, this is a book-length poem set on the island of St. Lucia, although it goes to other places, including the United States and Ireland and um, Paris and a few other places throughout the course of its pages. Like I said, it's broken up into books, separate books, and 62 chapters, and each chapter has three numbered sections, and they're written in a kind of a triad couplet style. I don't know what you would call it. But the, the entire book is written in three lines, space, three lines, space, three lines, with uh, some rhyming happening here and there throughout the book. That's literally all I knew about this. And the other thing is that I knew it was one of John's favorite books. I think he had read it twice and he just was, you know, he's always been kind of blown away by it. I thought I can't do this poetry episode without reading Omero. So I bought a used copy and I've been working through it over the last in a week and a half. And I got to say, it's very difficult for me to understand. Um, I, I've kind of battled with it the entire way, but I have never read anything like this, you know, before. Um, I haven't read a ton of poetry as I've been saying all along, but this is, you know, the language in this book is not like anything I've ever read, even from other poets, I want to say. Um, and I, I, I don't have, I really don't know what it's about. It's got characters that have vaguely 
and it's just ha- just so happens that I'm also reading the Iliad by Homer because I've never read it. We talked about that last episode. Has these characters with these names uh, that are sort of either from the Iliad or variations on it. So there's two fishermen. One's called um, Achille, without the S, as in Achilles, but without the S. Um, And another one is called Hector. And there's this woman that they're kind of vying for, a Caribbean woman named Helen, of course. And then there are a couple other characters in the book that have um, what seems to me like Greek names, but I'm not as familiar with what those names are. And then there's another elderly character comes in late by the name of Homeros, who seems to be this spirit or spirit of a poet. Maybe you can help me out with that, John. And I, and there's another elderly character in the story called seven seas. And I, I really, honestly, I don't know if they're the same person or not. Um, so it's just this saga about, um, living in the Caribbean. And there's another character in the story. That's an Englishman, an English soldier who has to be stationed in uh, on one of the Caribbean islands, on St. Lucia in the Caribbean. And some of the poem is from his perspective, just sort of being this kind of uh, individual from a nation that, you know, colonizes other nations and sort of a representative of high white society, you know, and all these characters are kind of in this book and the book you know, expressive of and, and, and you know, uh, brings to life this island and what what life is like on, on it and some of the history. And before I ask a question of you, um, would it be okay if I read a portion of it? It's it's one page, but it might take me a couple minutes. Yeah, um, go for it. I, I think people should get a sense of it. Okay, I again, I struggled with this book the entire time, but when I got to this, which was only yesterday, and this page I'm about to read, if you'll indulge me, somewhere in here, I thought this is kind of getting to the heart of what Derek Walcott is doing here. <laughs> so I'm going to read it and then I'll ask you for your impression, because what I want to ask you in general is to tell me more about your impression of this book. OK, so this is towards the very end of the book. And I believe it's kind of the poet speaking or no, it starts with this character, Seven Seas, who's an elderly man has been on the island of life talking to what I assume is the poet. And some of this won't be easy to understand, but I think you'll see where I'm going with this. Cause this kind of, this kind of blew me, blew me over. So it begins, you ain't been nowhere. Seven C said, you see nothing, no matter how far you may have traveled cities with shadowy spires stitched on a screen, which the beak of a swift, which is a type of bird on the Island has raveled and unraveled. You have learned no more than if you stood on that beach watching the unthreading foam you watched as a youth, except your skill with one oar. You hear the salt speech that your father once heard, one island and one truth. Your wanderer is a phantom from the boy's shore. Mark you, he does not go. He sends his narrator. He plays tricks with time because there are two journeys in every odyssey, one unworried water, the other crouched and motionless without noise. For both, the I, like the letter I, the individual, is a mast. A desk is a raft for one, foaming with paper and dipping the beak of a pen in its foam, while an actual craft carries the other 
to cities where people speak a different language or look at him differently, while the sun rises from the other direction with its unsettling shadows. But the right journey is motionless. As the sea moves around an island that appears to be moving, love moves around the heart with encircling salt, and the slowly traveling hand knows its return to the port from which it must start. Therefore, this is what this island has meant to you, why my bust spoke, why the sea swift was sent to you to circle yourself and your island with this art. And when I read that, I thought, I don't know what that means, but there's <laughs> something in there about the entire poem and what Derek Walcott is doing. And I wonder, John, could you just share with listeners, because I know this is very difficult to understand, but share with our listeners, like, what is it about this work that really moved you or kind of blew your mind? Well, it's it's several things. And, and it starts with the, the, the language, the beauty of the language in this book is like nothing I've ever read. I mean, even among poets that we've already talked about, the language is so uh, immersive like I have only I've I've only been to the Caribbean area once and it's kind of barely counts, but it was to the uh, Puerto Rico one time. But it gives you a little mm -hmm. bit of a flavor of what it must be like, you know, at points south and around there. So I have a tiny bit of experience, but that's it. But I remember reading this and I just felt like I was there, like I was on these beaches. I was on these islands. And it was so it's just so the language is so richly evocative that I really I agree. I mean, I only read this once. First of all, I've been back oh, to okay. it many. I've been back to it many times, just kind of dipping into the pages. But I only read the whole thing through once. And, you know, it's a, it's a long book. I mean, it's like yeah, this is yeah. a real honesty. Well, it's like three hundred and twenty five pages. But, you know, as you said, it's the entire thing is written in this sort of like uh, there's a word for it. But this, you know triplicate pattern of three lines it's the same same structure as dante's you know uh divine comedy you oh, know? okay kind of three line there's a word for it i just can't remember it but um and like the divine comedy it's almost like you know his his are divided into what are called cantos which is literally means songs but it's basically chapters you know um but Omeros, it, it's just, there's a couple things. The beauty of the language is just extraordinary. You know, I could spend a ton of, you could almost open any page in this book and just, you know, read incredible imagery that, you know, kind of just puts you there, uh, uh, you know, among these people in these island cultures on the seaside, on the water, um, you know, uh, fishing, you know, or, or, you know, watching heavy weather come in or whatever it might be. It's just incredible. The second thing is, and this is apparent from the, literally the first page all the way through. You know, he's telling the story of these people on this island that kind of like vaguely follows, you know, Homer's Odyssey very vaguely, you know, and that like kind of this journey to far off lands and coming back home. And that passage you just read, you know, sort of contrasts, you know, taking a literal journey versus taking a journey with the pen. You know, um, but the, he is somehow able to imbue these lines with so much history. Like literally on the first page, you're reading about these. I remember you're reading about these fishermen who are kind of, they're sort of building canoes and kind of demonstrating things for tourists, essentially. Mm -hmm. but, in, but in the first few lines, it immediately evokes like the slave trade. 
and it talks about you know slaves that had come over from Africa to these islands and what it was like for them. And throughout the entire work, you know, you don't just get a sense of you know vivid sense of what life is like in these in these island cultures. You also get a sense of the entire history, you know, of of, of African tribes coming over and they're mm-hmm. trying to you know acclimate to a new to a new life there. And also, you know, through this one character that you mentioned uh, in the British military, you know, uh, colonialism is just a huge kind of shadow and specter over this entire work. And again and again and again, he kind of evokes kind of the legacy of, of slavery and the impact it had on their lives and on their ancestors. And so it was just such a rich experience reading this book because not only did you feel like you were being totally immersed in, in in a Caribbean culture, which it, it which by nature means multiple African tribes, multiple peoples, multiple languages, French, English, Dutch, um, but also this this incredible, you know, traumatic history of slavery uh, that is so so much a part of the history of these islands that anybody from one of these islands, obviously Derek Walcott included. That's part of their whole history and their legacy and their ancestry. And this book just grapples with it all in just such an incredible way. I mean, I just felt like I had been introduced to a whole other environment and culture and history by reading this one work. Yeah. And and it also just has just passages of absolutely stunning beauty. I have to read one of them, okay? I mean, there are tons of them. But yeah, no, I hope you do. Yeah, very late in the book, I, you maybe you didn't even get to this yet. He's he's describing some of these fishermen. They're out on the water, um, and they see a whale. And you know, I can't really. I'd love to give you more context, but just the language, you know, and the two they're in rough seas, and they're they're in their boat, and it says, "Exultant with terror, Philo kept raveling the line round his fist, and then both both gasped as one whale." Baleen said a keel. I think it's a keel. I think it's like a French pronunciation, by the way. Um, okay. That's how I'm taking it. Lift, you know, I'm sorry. And then both gasped as one whale. Baleen said a keel. Lifted its tapering wedge as a, bu- as a bouquet of spume hissed from its splitting pod as it slowly heightened the island of itself. Then sounded the tail sliding till it disappeared into a white hole whose trough as it came lifted the boat with its two men high off the shelf of the open sea and then set it back down under a swell that swamped them while the indifferent shoal foamed northward. He had, he had seen the shut face of thunder. He has known the frightening trough dividing the soul from this life and the other. He has seen the pod burst into spray. The bilge was bailed out. The sail turned home their wet, salted faces shining with God, <laughs> you yeah. know? And it's just full of passages of incredible beauty like that, you know, this whale coming out of the water and how they, you know, sort of deal with that. It's, it's, it's hard to describe in words, like you said, but I found it to be one of the most richly immersive experiences I've ever had reading anything, not just for a certain place, but also for an entire history that is full of blood and 
agony and suffering, but also, you know, great beauty. So it's just an incredibly evocative book that I, and, and I, and I know nothing about this history. So I only got probably, you know, 3% of everything that's in it. But as you can hear, just that one reading, and it's never left my mind. It just had that, the language is so extraordinary. It just had that kind of impact on me. Yeah, I really appreciate that you introduced me to the book. I, you know, I, I like I said, I had it in my mind for many years. I was like, you know, because you know, with you and I, there's books that one of the other twin talks about, and they never stop talking about it. You almost have to read it just to get the monkey off your back to get him to shut up or whatever. But like, yeah. but, but, and, and, but in all seriousness, like this was a book that really had an impact on you. And we, you know, we try not to miss those, you know, that are really impactful for the other twin. But just two things to to react to what you just said about it, like, and, and I'm basically just agreeing with you. Two things, I, I, I thought the book was amazing, John. Like, I, I tried to not say what my reaction was as I was going through it. It was really hard, but it was definitely worth every every hour that it took to read through the book. It was a great struggle um, in, the, in all senses. But, like, the two things that kind of just amazed me about it that you've been talking about, are number one, just you have this sense when you read this book that there was this, especially as a white American, maybe a male, white male American, whatever. There was this whole other history, you know, part of the world, these people on this island with a whole rich history, centuries and struggle, blood and sun and sea and surf and, you know, the fish and all that kind of stuff, this whole other thing that I'm completely ignorant of that this book just kind of blows open in your mind, like you were saying, and that I'm so grateful for the experience, just so I know that. And it, I didn't think there was anything in the world that could make me want to go to the Caribbean. I mean, I love the, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. I love the ocean and the sun and sunsets and all that kind of stuff, but I'm not a big beach person. This book changed that for me. Like I really mm -hmm. want to go there so I can see what it's, what he's talking about, which is amazing. Cause I've never been into it my whole life. And the second thing I want to say is, um, so it's not only that, and it's just this, you mentioned it, the language, the performance you start. So the first chapter in the book is about the, the you know, this ancient craft of making these boats out of the trees on this Caribbean Island, you know, like they're building these canoes and yeah. it just starts there. And the language is at such a high level. And I thought, well, okay, but I'm looking at 325 pages. It's like <laughs> the guy comes out at this incredibly high level and sustains it for 325 pages in verse. I, I'm utterly flabbergasted by that, you know, that anybody could have done that. And you, and you can see why this guy was a no brainer for the Nobel prize, you know, like, cause this achievement is like, you know, it's not like any book I've ever read. And I'm talking about things like Moby Dick and Bible and all that stuff. This is, this stands by itself. <laughs> and it's really hard, but it's really worth it. You know, that's what I would say. Yeah, it's truly one of the great, in my opinion, one of the great books of world literature. It stands right up there with anything. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, like people talk about the work of William Faulkner, for example, where it's like it, some work is so extraordinary, kind of it, it almost represents an entire culture. Like in some ways you could say the work of Faulkner is kind of, you know, an expression of, all the turmoil in the American South, you know, like, right. well, this book, 
is like that. It's like, and it's that, you know, you could always, there are always other books that add to that conversation, but it's like expressing almost the entire, you know, history and struggle of the, the, the Caribbean islands and, and colonialism and the people there and what they've had to grapple with and their experience. And to write one work that could represent something like that, you know, and maybe some people don't feel it does. And obviously there are always dissenting voices. You know, there's some people who can't stand Faulkner, you know, or don't right. think he speaks for the South or whatever. But to capture so much in one work is really just, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's just a, an incredibly rare thing in literature. And I, and I think this book is one of those, it's one of those, it's like Aldor Laxness is independent people, you know, that seems to capture the, the experience of Iceland in, in like one novel, you know, it's something like that. And uh, yeah, it's like, it's, it's, it's a sub four minute mile. It's like pitching a perfect game. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's just an achievement, you know, and you can, you get that sense right away. Right. And the person who, you know, the pitcher who pitches the perfect game in some ways can walk away from the mound and never go back. You know, it's never going to get, it's not going to get better than that, but it's also like your, your legacy is cemented with that one game. Right. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Anyway. It is that, you know, and yeah, it points to you for however you ran into that book and roped it in. Well, I'm glad you grappled with it. I think that that's a great place to stop. I mean, there's so much more we could say, but I think, you know, that's a good, as good a place as any to wrap it up. Um, so why don't we do that? Take a quick break and then we'll come back and just do the show wrap up. All right. Sounds good. Dude, we have reached the end of the show, but we will talk briefly about what we have coming up next on, on our reading pile. And then we'll kind of, as always, we'll segue into a little tease for our next show, um, which I'm going to uh, ask you to let me do that, uh, if you don't mind, because then I'm, I'm going to just make one little kind of short announcement that's really, that makes it sound bigger than it is. But why don't you, why don't you uh, tell me what you have coming up and then, you know, I'll, I'll finish it out. That sounds good. Okay, so next up for me um, is not going to be that exciting to you necessarily, and I'm going to be starting it either tonight or tomorrow. Um, I'm turning the corner from verse, and I'm going to be reading a nonfiction book. It's called The Bad Guys One, and it is about the 1986 New York Mets. Um, written no by, <laughs> yeah, written by a sports reporter by the name of Jeff Perlman, 
this was actually his first book and it's a very, it was a very successful book. He went on to write some other sports books of renown, including a book about the Dallas Cowboys. And, uh, I think, uh, maybe about the NCAA tournament. I'm not sure, but, um, it's about, it has this big, long subtitle. I don't have it with me. So it's, it's like, you know, the wild, crazy, you know, bimbo chasing New York Mets in 1986. Um, I'll just say I'm connected. I'm I'm doing some research for a nonfiction writing project I want to work on that may have something to do with the game of baseball. And this book not only is instructive for that, but it also is <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading it because we lived through, particularly in our household, Mets Mania in the mid eighties. And right. you know, our our dad was a huge Mets fan. At the time he was like famously, you know, he traveled to whatever shore was, you know, greener or whatever pastures were greener in sports. But at the time, he was a huge New York Mets fan. Um, and that team from the 1986 Mets, like, just kind of exploded. And against all odds, they won the World Series. And this book is a chronicle of how wild and crazy those guys were. And I'm sure it's going to be very eye-opening because I remember admiring them as a 14 or 15-year-old. You know, maybe I won't feel the same way reading about their exploits while they were you know, winning the World Series, but I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be kind of interesting. And, you know, uh, I'm doing a lot of thinking about baseball like I did two years ago, right around this time. So um, that's yeah. what I'm reading. And uh, over to you. What are, What's coming up for you? Well, that that should be fun because that's definitely going to evoke memories of being in our house in the, in the 80s when they were winning. And I remember going to a couple of Mets games in the upper deck there at Chase Stadium and stuff. So, you know, right, right, yeah, very nostalgic. You know, it's true. Yeah, that'll be fun. So, I what I'm reading is going to set us up nicely for the for the next episode that we record. We're not exactly sure when we're going to record it, which I'll get to in a second. But uh, we've talked about this for a couple weeks, a couple shows running that we are are going to do. Our next episode, episode fifty one, is going to be. Uh, a review of a new novel from Jennifer Egan called The Candy House. So we've been teasing that for a little while here. I think both you and I went back and reread the novel that she's calling a sibling to this current novel, which is A Visit to the Goon Squad, which won her the Pulitzer Prize, uh, among many other accolades. So we both recently revisited that in preparation for a discussion of Egan's new novel called The Candy House, I just started reading it. I don't think I told you that, but I'm into it now. Um, and it's it's very early, so you know I'm not going to say anything at this point. But certainly excited to read it. Uh, I think we're both big fans of the novel Visit to the Goon Squad and also Jennifer Egan as a writer in general, somebody that we've wanted to cover for a long time. So this gives us an opportunity to do that. So that's going to be episode 51. The announcement I wanted to make is that we are going to take a short hiatus um, from recording just for a couple of weeks. Um, there are just a couple of reasons why we need to do that, you know, for both um, uh, personal reasons. So I just want to say to our listeners, uh, you know, we will be back. We may not be back. We're certainly not going to be back in a two-week time frame. It's going to be a little bit longer than that, but I expect the show, you know, our next episode will uh, on Jennifer Egan's The Candy House will arrive sometime in June. But I just wanted to mention that it won't be it, it's highly unlikely it'll be two weeks from when we drop this one. So just a brief hiatus from us, but we will be back and uh, we hope you'll 
hang with us and uh, join us when we drop the next, next episode. So that's all I wanted to say there. And unless you have anything else you want to add, Jude, I think we've come to the end of the road. Well, I don't hear you. So I don't know, maybe you dropped off, but I'm going to go ahead and just wrap this up. Thanks for everyone for listening to this episode of the Book Exchange Podcast. And as I say, we will be back sometime in June. So take care, everybody. All right, thanks.